everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Now look, I I appreciate that if you're not used to being in church, and even if you are used to being in church, you may read words like that and think, what on earth has that got to do with me, (laughs) us, today? It sounds pretty complicated, and even if it wasn't complicated, it would still sound quite distant from us. So let me try and persuade you, firstly, why this really matters, and then we'll look at it and see what it's teaching us. This is why it matters. It matters because we live in a world where there is deep, deep injustice. We live in a world where there is huge division between groups of people. We live in a world where the color of your skin or your gender or your social status will have a huge impact on your ability to get on in life. That is just the reality of the world we live in, a world of injustice. And it's interesting because there is this real desire, I think, for what people talk about as a level playing field. People want, they want a situation where it's fair. When Barack Obama was elected president in 2013, he wrote a book called The Audacity of Hope in which he outlined his vision for society. And in his inauguration speech in 2013, he said these words. He said, we are true to our creed when a little girl born in the bleakest poverty, knows that she has the same chance to succeed as anybody else. Do you get what he's saying? At the moment, you could have a little girl who is an unbelievable mathematician, but she's born in bleak poverty. She has no access to the sort of resources that someone born in a more wealthy place is going to have the opportunity to develop. And Barack Obama's vision of society is, that's not right. What should be the case is that that little girl has just as much chance to succeed as this little boy. It is what you might call a meritocracy. That is where you, no matter who you are, what background you're from, you have the opportunity to succeed according to your ability and your hard work. So we live in a society, I think, that aspires, I don't think we are a meritocracy, but I think we're in a society where most people say that's what we want to be. We want to be a place where everybody has an equal opportunity to succeed. And so now, your value and worth is not tied to your gender or your skin color or your ethnicity or your background. It's not tied to any of those things. Your value and your worth is tied to your ability. It's tied to your hard work. It's tied to you. And so now, whatever our society decides we are going to most value, now, you, if you fit into that system of value, you have worth. So if you live in a culture, I hope you're following, I know this is a bit heavy to start, but I just want you to get into this. If you live in a culture, right, imagine that we lived in a culture where really the most important thing was that we had warriors who would protect us. 
because there were enemies all around us who were threatening all the time. What really matters is warriors. Suddenly, if you have warrior-like qualities, you are going to be highly esteemed because your merit is tied to your warrior-ness. But of course, it might not be worries. It might be productivity. It might be that your merit, what our society most values, is productivity and therefore your value if you're a really productive person. In fact, you can tell what a society most values by who they pay the most. Fascinating, isn't it? When you think about our society, we may say we value all sorts of things, but who do we pay the most? Premier League footballers? Interesting, isn't it, how we, you, you can see sort of our values working out. But at its core, there's this claim, this kind of revolutionary call from Barack Obama. Let's change the world. Let's make it so that everybody has access to opportunities. Now, you may say to me, John, what are you waffling on about? This is what I'm waffling on about. Galatians presents us with a vision that is more revolutionary and more radical than any politician would ever, ever dare to present. Galatians is a manifesto of a community that is marked by something so radically different. Where your merit and your worth is not tied to your performance, your hard work, your productivity, your physical strength, your beauty, your sporting ability. Your value is not tied, your merit is not tied to what society says matters, but is tied to something else. And this, the reason I'm giving this quite a long introduction is because this week and next week is really all just one long talk on these two passages. It's one long sermon on these two bits of the Bible. And at the heart of it, listen to this. This is next week's passage, but I'm nicking it for this week. Here's the vision. Paul says it is possible. Paul's idea for this community is that it be a community where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Look, you've got to let that sink in for a second. That is a radical view of what it means to be a community, of what it means to be a people. Where actually social status no longer matters. Gender is no longer something which is your merit or your worth is tied to. No, it's all tied somewhere else. It's all tied to the gift of God that he's given us in Jesus. It's all tied to grace. So now you have a community where rather than having those who have merit and those who don't, you now live in a community where all are one in Christ. That's more audacious than Barack Obama's vision of society. It's more. In fact, it's what I want to call, and I don't think anyone else has ever called it this, so what the heck. I want to call it a charisocracy. We, we're not being called to live in a meritocracy, but we're being called to live in a charisocracy. Now, you may say, why? Well, charis is the Greek word for grace or gift. That's, that's the word, right, of God's grace. 
And what fundamentally defines our value and worth in this new community that God is calling into being is not your merit based on what you can do, but is your merit based on what God has done in Christ by his grace. It's the foundation of what we are. It shapes our identity and it shapes everything. Now, that's what I want us to try and dig into, all right? And the reason that this is going to matter is because I think what we see today and next week is going to have profound implications for how we operate as a church, for what we do. And can I say, if we're not changed in the next couple of weeks, then I don't think we're listening hard enough. We're not supposed to come to church and just listen and leave and go, well, that was interesting. He told a good joke this week. Well, that was slightly dull. We're supposed to leave saying, I've been changed. I want to live differently. Because I've understood the foundation of my identity, the foundation of our identity. Right, that's what we're doing. So let's get into this. We're going to start with, um, and we're going to look at the text. And what Paul does is he starts this, this kind of new bit of his argument is he's going to introduce a new set of words for us. You're going to have to get used to these words. The words are covenant, promise, gift. These are the words that are now going to occupy our thinking for the next few weeks. Promise. So let's read um, verse 15 again. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. So Paul is desperately trying to get this church to recognize what God has done. He says, what? What can I use from everyday life? And he thinks of a human covenant, a binding agreement between two people, where two people promise one another something and enter into a binding agreement. He says, you can't then add to that, right? You can't have that and they go, oh, by the way, also this, 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 and this. No, this is what matters. You don't add to a human covenant. And so look what he says. So it is in this case. Right, look at verse 16. Here comes the word promise. The promises were spoken to Abraham. Right, let's have Abraham. There he is. The promises of God were spoken to Abraham. (laughs) I'm going to take that as a laugh. Um, This is foundational for us. If you already know this stuff, praise God, you Don't be grumpy that I'm saying it again. Some people don't know it, and you need to put up with it. So, back in Genesis 12, God made promises to a man called Abraham. And the promises that God made to Abraham were stunning. Just listen to them again. Don't worry about turning to it, just listen. God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God speaks to this man, Abraham. Right, here's the question then. Why? Why did God make promises to Abraham? Why didn't he choose Jeff in Milton Keynes? Why Abraham? What was it about this one man, Abraham, that God looked over? All the humanity that was existing at that time, he said, yeah, you're you're the one. 
Was it that Abraham was some awesome individual? Was it that Abraham had a huge love for God? Was it that Abraham done loads of good things? What was it about Abraham? Well, I'll tell you about Abraham. Before he met God, he was worshipping idols and he did not care about God at all. There is nothing in Abraham that merits God's promise. God did not look for the best people. So to be honest, he could have chosen Jeff and Milton Keynes. There was nothing about Abraham. Abraham was far away, and God came to him, and he made this promise. Abraham, I will bless you. That is what we mean by grace, the gift, not on the basis of anything in Abraham, but in God's unconditional choice and love. It's stunning. So Paul wants you to know, he wants you to know that that's what God is like. He makes this promise to Abraham. Except, and this is going to push you now to think, it wasn't just to Abraham. So look what Paul says, go back to Galatians 3, verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. That means like his offspring. But scripture does not say to and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What a complicated little sentence. And yet Paul really wants you to know that when, okay, this is cool, right? You've got to stick with this if you, honestly, this is cool. God makes this promise to Abraham. Here it is, promising to Abraham. But what's actually going on, Paul says, is something bigger. There's like this massive arc that is from Abraham. This one story, the promise to Abraham, is actually a promise to Christ. God made the promise to Abraham and to his seed. Now look, we normally think God made the promise and it was about Jesus, the Christ. That's not what Paul says. It was not a promise about Christ. It was a promise to Christ. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense because Jesus wasn't existing. He didn't live until 2,000 years later. Don't forget, we already know from Galatians chapter 2 that Jesus is the Son of God. The eternal Son of God. So yes, he did exist in the days of Abraham. So now, listen to this. I'm going to read that promise from Genesis 12 again. But this time, I want you to hear it not just as a promise to Abraham, but as a promise that the father makes to his son. Listen to this. Son, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, my son. That's what was going on in Genesis 12. It is this story. God makes a promise to Abraham, but actually it's a promise to Christ. 
And so suddenly you discover that Abraham is as irrelevant as Jeff from Milton Keynes in one sense. He's someone who gets caught up into this story by God's grace. But actually what God was doing was making his promise to his son. So the merit, the merit for why this promise is going to be kept is not in Abraham. He was an idol-worshipping nobody out living in Ur when God called him. But actually, God the Father looked at his son, the Christ, and could see his infinite merit and worth. And this whole promise of God rests on the merit of Jesus, the Son of God. This is grace. This is what we mean. And what Paul is arguing through this book of Galatians is that you get caught up into that story. This promise that God made to Abraham is the promise that you now enter into as you come to Christ Jesus for life. You become part of that story of blessing. All nations will be blessed through you, my precious Christ. That's us. We are the all nations being blessed through Christ. It's so spectacular. But I do just want to say, as we think about the promise, let's just push on this, because this is important for us to see. This is not a promise that means Abraham does nothing. Right, there are some promises, aren't there, like that? I uh, once, we used to have a, a, a very wealthy um, friend. Um, and he lived in Jordan, and his daughter stayed with us when I was a kid, and he used to come, and, and he said to us one time, I'll bring you a present next time I come back from Jordan. What would you like? And I, um, I was quite well brought up, really, and I said to him, well, I'd like some sweets. Some sweet. would be really nice, some sweets. My little brother, on the other hand, less so, he just went, I want a remote-controlled car. And the man looked at both of us and said, that's fine. I was thinking, what have I done? <laughs> this is awful. He promised, I'll be back and I'll bring you your gift. I've got to be honest, after that promise happened, we sort of forgot about it. Well, you know, we didn't, didn't change our lives. It didn't make any difference to our lives. And then he turned up at a later date and he gave my brother a remote-controlled car and he gave me my sweets. <laughs> oh, I learned a hard lesson that day. But the point is that that promise, it made no real difference to our everyday lives. But when God comes to Abraham and makes this promise to him, when God says, I will bless you, and actually he's talking to Christ, actually that promise, it transformed Abraham's life. He didn't go on worshipping idols, right? He didn't sit over here in Ur of Chaldeans going, tell you what, <laughs> the God of the universe came and appeared to me. I'll carry on worshipping my idols. No, he was called out of that life. He was called out of what he was previously. And he was called into a new existence. Called into a life of relationship with God. Called into a life of enjoying God's blessing and responding to God in praise and worship and obedience. So he left his land and he moved in obedience to God. But it was a response to grace, not a reward. It was not the deserving, not the merit of grace. It transformed him. And sometimes it, is it possible that 
that we like the promises of God. We go, oh, that's nice. I like to sing about, oh, my life has been so faithful. And we like to sing about this stuff. But do we actually live it? Do we allow the promises of God to call us away from the way we used to live into this new life? A life of this radical new view of what it means to be community where we lay down our lives for each other. So here's this promise going on. I hope you can see some of this stuff that's going on. Promise to Abraham to Christ. But then Paul needs to deal with the law. Because at the moment, you've got Abraham and you've got Christ. But what about the law? Where, Where does the law fit in? Well, this is the wrong way to understand it. Okay, let's have to think. This is the wrong way to understand it. And this is what was going on in Galatians. This is why the book of Galatians is really important. So God made his promises to Abraham. So let's have Abraham up again. Oh, wrong way. There he is. So God comes to Abraham. And God makes his promises to Abraham. I will bless you. And then 430 years later, God adds a bit. Through a man called Moses. And Moses gives the law. And so now you have the promises of God and you have the law, like the Ten Commandments and all of that stuff. And so now, to be God's people, you need to have the promises of God and you need to keep the law. And what what had begun to happen, this is wrong, we're going to see this in a second, but this is what had begun to happen, was that the law had begun to be the meritorial system by which people were living. They were saying, if we, this gives us merit. So in the Old Testament, before Jesus, the law was given and it included circumcision and included keeping the Sabbath and not eating the wrong sorts of food. And those things, people said, this gives us merit. This is why God loves us. This is why we get grace, because we've done this. And the law becomes the value system of the society. And that's what is going on in the book of Galatians. Look, it's great you've got the promise, and it's great you've got Christ, and it's great you've got all that stuff, but now you need to add the law to it as well. And this distinction was beginning to grow in the church now, because when you have a meritorial system, when you have things based on merit, then divisions grow, because you have the people who have and the people who haven't. If it becomes about circumcision, it's pretty obvious you've got two groups. You either are or you aren't. If you're keeping the Sabbath, if you're doing those rules, now groups begin to split out in the church because it's no longer based on grace. It's now turning into a meritocracy where it's based on the law, and the law has become the means by which they decide who is valuable and who isn't. And so now you have people in church who are beginning to become proud. Look at what I'm doing. Look how much I merit God's favor. And others who feel useless. And rubbish. Because they're now tying their value to merit and what they do. But Paul, look at him, he's so clear. Verse 17. What I mean is this the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. It doesn't change the foundation of what God's people are. It isn't grace. And then some law. 
No, the foundation stays grace. It is still a charisocracy. For if the inheritance depends on the law, it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Paul's banging their heads. He's saying, Can you, why did God give Abraham a promise? Was it by the law? No. So stop turning to the law. Stop trying to merit things. That's never been the way it's worked. Now that raises an interesting question then, right? Well, Paul seems to think so. Verse 19. Why then was the law given? What's the point of the law? That's the obvious question. If you've got the promise and it's all going through to Christ and blah, 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 why was the law given? What's the point of it? Paul says it was never to merit anything. It was never a system of merit. Verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgression until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So in this gap, between Abraham and the seed, between Abraham and Christ, and it's a long gap, the law was put in place as a temporary measure for a period of time until Christ came. Can we see that? That's what, that's, I mean, I'm literally just saying what he said. And it was put in place because of transgressions. In other words, there was a problem that the law was a temporary solution to. Not a solution. The law was a temporary revealing of a problem in the people. So actually, here's Abraham. He's received the promise. But Abraham and all of his descendants after him, they still sin. They still go back to idolatry. They still keep going backwards and backwards and backwards. And so God put the law in place to say to his people, look how Look how much you need my promise. So God gives them a law which just exposes how bad things have got. You may well have heard this example before, but I can't think of a better one. I guess it's like a beautiful green bit of grass and a little sign that says, do not walk on the grass. And you're happily walking through on a path, and you see the sign, and something in you sort of goes, I didn't really want to walk on the path, but now I really do want to walk on the grass, because there's a little sign telling me I can't. And that little sign sort of exposes something about your heart. And so God says, do not covet. And suddenly it begins to almost make you covet, right? The, the law is kind of... It, it's exposing our problem. It's a temporary, temporary system put in place to expose the problem. But the law was always inferior. Look at the end of verse 19. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. Why does he say that? Well, how was the promise given? Come on, let's think about this. Was there a mediator with the promise? No. The promise, straight from God to Abraham. The law, God, Moses, Abraham, uh, the people. There was a mediator. 
And the point is simply that, yes, the law is okay. No, no the law is not okay. It's good. It was given by angels. It's a wonderful thing. But it's not as good as the promise. It doesn't last like the promise does. The promise is what creates the foundation of God's people, not the law. Which then makes Paul answer one more question, ask one more question, and then we're going to um, just think about where this all leaves us. So if the law was a temporary thing because of sin and to sort of restrain and expose and all those sorts of things, sin, verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Are they, in con- are they fighting with each other? No, Paul says. Because the law was never supposed to be the means by which you had God's promise. Or to use the language here, it would get life or righteousness. The law was never, it was always that, all of that stuff comes through the promise, not through the law. So what does the law do? Well, verse 32, 22 Scriptures locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. This is what the law does. It increasingly locks you up. It locks up, locks up, locks up. It it shows you how weak you are. It puts you in a cage until you get to the point where you say, I need someone to set me free. And then God says, oh, that will be the one I promised. And now he's here. This is what the law was for, to lock, to, lock us, to lock the people up under the control of sin so that they would realize how much they needed the promised Christ. And so you can understand Paul's amazement when he says to them, so why are you turning to the law? The time of the law is done. It's done its job. It's finished. It was put in place to lead us to Christ. Now, by the way, this isn't, look, if you're getting twitchy, this isn't everything the Bible says about the law. It's what this bit says about the law. In chapter 5, he's going to tell us that there is a law. (laughs) But it's not this law. It's different. Ah, we'll get to it. But for now, it's important you understand this. It's important that we understand that everything rests on the promises of God. So they're beginning to turn back to merit. And can I say to you, I, I think there is a tendency that we, as individuals and as a church, can easily shift from charisocracy to meritocracy. We can love grace and we can sing about grace, and yet when it fundamentally comes down to it, the people that we think are most valuable are the ones that fit our system the ones who do the things that we think are most valuable. And so if you're in a church that thinks that preaching is the most important thing, then the people you'll most value are the preachers. If you're in a church that thinks that music is the most important thing, then the people you'll most value are the musicians. If you're in a church that thinks that food is the most important thing, then the people you'll value will be the food people, catering people. And all we're doing is we're simply putting ourselves back into a meritocracy where you end up with the people who have and the people who are given, you know, the people who deserve stuff. And grace undercuts all of that. 
It says to all of you, you are all part of the promise. You are all part of Abraham's seed. You are all inheritors of this promise. You don't deserve it any more than Abraham deserved it, but he gave it to you in his grace. You do nothing. That, there is nothing that you do to merit it. And can I say to you, and this is sort of anticipating chapter 5, that will transform your life more than any list of rules could possibly do. It really will. See, sometimes we're so obsessed with wanting to control people's behavior that we need rules, right? Like with little kids, we need a sticker chart. Sticker chart, say, don't we on the floor and I'll give you a sticker, right? And they say, oh, well done, I'll give you another sticker. And uh, we reward, we, we merit, and, and that's how we control. And churches can slip into that. Here are the rules you've got to keep. You've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. And people do it out of duty and out of guilt. But the goal of being a parent is not that you keep sticker charts, right? If I'm still doing a sticker chart with my 18-year-old, I failed as a parent. Because my job is to move him towards grace. My job is to so help people to see the glory of Jesus that it transforms people. So I don't want to worship idols. I want to live this way. I want to lay down my life for people. And radical Christian obedience flows out of grace, not out of merit. That's where chapter 5 ends. That's where we're heading. But for this afternoon, let's, let's wrap this up. And I guess the simple question is, do you let the grace of God, the gift of God, the promise of God, do you let that shape your identity, your foundational identity? Is that who you think you are? I'm not asking you to sort of flippantly go, oh, probably or probably not. I'm asking now, does that shape who you are? And does it then shape how you view others in such a way that we could say there is neither slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, male or female? Those are not the things that we value. Those are not the things that we reward. There's Christ. There's grace. There's promise. This would transform us. It would change who we eat with. It would change who we live with. It would change what we do with our lives when the grace of God gets hold of us. That's what we're going to see as we go on through these chapters in Galatians. But let me bow, let's bow our heads and let's um, pray now. Father, we, we read this stuff and, and Lord, we, we wrestle with it um, and, and it is so countercultural and subversive. It, it, there is nothing else in our world that is like this. There is nothing else that says this stuff. There is no other system of community that gets even close to this. And yet, Father, we confess we so often, we fall short of it. We keep slipping back into something rubbish. Lord, please, let us press into this grace. Let us not turn to the law, that good but temporary measure that you put in place in order that we would see how much we needed Christ. Father, please don't let us put ourselves and allow ourselves to be locked up by a value system that you don't place on us. 
Help us instead to be set free by the value that you've placed on us in Christ. That because of him, because he gave his life, because he died, we live. Our Father, please let us taste that grace even this afternoon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.